Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of rock and roll exclusive home of the critically acclaimed and much anticipated, always appreciated, Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, listen, I uh, hope everybody out there listening is doing well as well. You know, of course. Um, listen, what did Cinderella say when her photos didn't arrive? Someday my prince will come. Thank you very much. <laughs> A for effort, maybe. A C for cheese. I don't know. Give it up for Duff. Always delivering no matter where he is in the world. Consistently for the last six or seven years. We'll get him on the pod again soon to talk about his new solo album, Lighthouse. It's out today. Order it at DuffOnline.com and stream it wherever you listen to music. Plus Fozzie's new song, Spotlight. Also available to stream wherever you listen to music. Go check that out now and come check us out on the Spotlight on North America tour. We kicked it off last night in Chattanooga, kicking off the show every night with our new song, Spotlight. It takes a lot of guts. Thanks to everyone who came. We packed the house. We're in Lexington, Kentucky tonight, uh, Angola, Indiana on Saturday, Sunday in McHenry, Illinois at the Vixen, Monday at the Forge in Joliet. And so many other tour dates to come. Just go to fazerock.com to see all the information as we head through Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, ending up November 6th in Memphis. Go to uh, fazerock.com for all ticket and VIP information. Don't forget our VIP meet and greet. It's the best of the business. We meet you, hang out with you, play some songs you're not going to hear later that night at a private set just for you. You can even sing with us. Uh, and also Fozzie coming to the UK again as well in February. Spotlight in the UK, February 16th in Newport, Wales. Tickets to that show and all the meet and greets and all the other shows also at FozzieRock.com. All right. Now, today on the show, I've got Al Snow, my, one of my old friends in the business. Uh, he's the current owner of OVW, which is the subject of a new docuseries on Netflix. The series is called Wrestling. It's really good. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, go watch it. Uh, I had to have Al on to explain how this all came together after I checked it out. We talk about how and why he came to buy OVW from Danny Davis, how the wrestling series got made, and when Netflix got involved. And, of course, we talk about how his own wrestling career, including the infamous head gimmick that started in ECW, what Vince McMahon thought of it in WWE. He explains what happened uh, that, to inspire the head gimmick, the great advice he got from Paul Heyman the, uh, that really made it work. And, of course, once Vince thought about it as well. The Al also stories about the Candle from Hell match. What a great one that one's with the Big Boss Man. Uh, said that with uh, tongue in cheek. Tag team with Mick Foley, wrestling The Rock, The Undertaker. He discusses the art of selling, working smart in the ring, and the lessons he tries to teach upcoming talent in OVW and everywhere. Al Snow, great conversation, great guy, and a great episode of Talk is Jericho starting right here, right now. Al Snow. As I live and breathe, man. How you doing? Doing great. How are you? I am doing excellent. It's great to see you. Uh, it's been a long time in person, yeah. but I've been watching you through your window every night. Why <laughs> uh, <laughs> I leave it open? You know, it just keeps open. And also, of course, on on wrestlers, which 
I really didn't know anything about this show. Some of my friends started talking about it and and kind of telling me about what was going on. So I checked it out and I thought it was an amazing kind of six, seven part documentary basically on you and what you're doing now. How did you feel about it and how did it start coming about? And kind of tell me a little bit of a story about, about how this documentary happened. Yeah, it was uh, quite honestly a once one in a million shot and a once in a lifetime thing. Myself and a couple of my partners had bought uh, OVW from Danny Davis back in 2018. You know, we were starting the process, you know, that you have to do to build an audience. And then COVID hit and that really, you know, it hurt everybody. Right. We couldn't operate. We had no money coming in. So we brought on uh, some additional partners into the company. One of those was Craig Greenberg, who's now the mayor of Louisville, of all things. No kidding. Yeah. It just complete happenstance. They had a, uh, Moki and his wife knew this uh, lady from high school, I guess. And she came back into town to attend a wedding. One thing led to another, you know, he mentioned about the wrestling thing and she found it interesting, took it to one of the other executives. Uh, his name's Alejandro Mendez out there with BBC America. He was really fascinated by the uh, idea and of this little wrestling company and, he came and uh, filmed like a five, six minute teaser tape that he then showed to Greg Whiteley, who is famous for uh, Last Chance You and Cheer. Mm-hmm. Does absolutely, the guy's so talented, does absolutely amazing work. They somehow sold him on the idea. And then he went to Netflix. They sent him out to film a little short episode to pitch to the executives and you know, one thing led to another, and Greg and his crew showed up last May, uh, the end of May, and they were here until the end of August, filming 12, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, I try to make sure I emphasize that it's not a reality show, like it was a documentary. He wanted to, he insisted that he wanted to come in and just document everybody in their lives. And, and then, you know, we all agreed that we'd be as open as we could possibly be to, to do it, so. You've been in the business for a long time, and 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 obviously, people say it when you're in the business that the best show about wrestling would be filming the backstage, real life goings on, you know, and not like you know divas and all those shows, like you said, were reality shows, but to get the actual sense of what's going on, they really nailed it because, and we'll get into this. You have so much you have to deal with, you know, as the booker, right. you know, and and promoter that I don't think people really understand building up matches and then somebody gets hurt or building up matches and then somebody goes across country to wrestle somewhere else. And there's so many little things that I don't like, there's no other business like wrestling and it's really hard to grasp it, but you got to really show off that side of what you have to go through. I tell everybody all the time, like the wrestling business is like every other business. I mean, you you need to make a product and then build either an audience or a customer base so that you can sell your product to them. But it's not like any other business in the sense that, you know, I can go get a Jimmy John's franchise and I've got to do the same thing. I got to make really good sandwiches, get a customer base, you know, make a profit. But in wrestling, as you well know, the sandwiches have their own idiosyncrasies, their own (laughs) their own agendas, you know, and you've got to try to manage all of that at all times, you know. I don't have a problem with it, but my sandwich would never be eaten. That's just how it goes. (laughs) But but you're right about that. You know, you get to like you had to really delve into that sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, even I wrote TV 
for this Thursday, I had a particular guy who I needed as he's the right opponent for this particular guy so that the guy can go over on somebody that means something because I'm building him to work for the heavyweight title. Now that I find out yesterday that that guy is in New Mexico on Thursday, the opponent, and uh, now I've got to figure out not just an opponent, but the right opponent that will do the right thing for him. Mm. You know, everybody's like, well, what's the big deal? You just put another guy in there. It's like, it's not that simple. You got to put the right guy in there at the right time with the right guy to do the right business. And you got to be able to pull that off. So that, I'm going to have to deal with that this week and figure that out. Still haven't figured out the opponent yet and TV's tomorrow. So. <laughs> and you're wasting your time talking to me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so excited when, uh, you know, I found this out. It's been so long since I've gotten to see you and talk to you or catch up or anything, you know, so. Yeah, no, and that's one thing, like I said, like, like, I find with wrestling, you might not see somebody for years, but as soon the moment you see him again, you get that goofy grin on your face and start yeah. remembering all the all the cool stuff. And I, once again, like I really did enjoy watching this show. And that's why I was like, man, I need to have Al on, on my show because we've never had a chance to really delve into any of this. But but yeah. before we kind of go more into your career, so tell me more about why you decided to buy OVW. Because like for me, like the one thing I never wanted to be was a promoter. Right. And now with this cruise that I have, yeah. I'm a promoter by proxy. And it's like, fuck, you know, like, what do you do? So what, what were you getting yourself into when you decided to do this? I guess I lost my mind and I just went, you know what? <laughs> I'm bored and I want to rip myself perpetually. So I'm <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. Again, I don't, it was not the plan to do it. You know, I was away from Louisville for, but I'd still owned my home here and got married and decided, you know, Hey, I asked my wife to, if she would be interested in moving, moving to Louisville. And we moved back. I started kind of hanging out around OVW and around Danny at the time. Listen, I'm the last person that wants more, you know, of any kind of administration or oversight. But I'd heard about a young kid who had been poorly trained in Oklahoma. He died. You know, he had an injury in the ring where he put like just a spine buster or something, but struck his head and had brain swelling. And, and yeah. so they had to pull a plug. So, and at the time I was kind of going around, you know, you go around the independence and stuff like that. And I was seeing guys, and not just from, uh, I want to make this perfectly understood, that it wasn't from just an aesthetic or cosmetic appearance. There were people that are now in the wrestling business that they just weren't physically in the athletic shape that they really need to be able to be in to really perform this safely. Because, you know, we don't acknowledge it, but I mean, every time we go to the ring, there's a percentage of a chance that you can suffer a life altering or life injury, you know? Right. And when you've got somebody who's one, not properly trained and two physically is not in the right type of condition, those chances now go up exponentially. Right. I just got, I guess, cause I, when I broke in and I'm sure even back in the day when you did too, there were standards and guys were held accountable for whoever they brought into the business and, and then that kind of went away. My wife is a licensed masseuse. You know, I, I just thought, why is it like, you want to be a barber, you want to be a beautician, even a mortician. I mean, what are the odds that someone could go wrong there? The guy's already dead. But <laughs> but you want to be any of these licensed professions, you've got to go to a state accredited school. you got to be taught by a state accredited teacher. You've got to complete a number of uh, required hours. 
And then you've got to have a certain amount of residency, you know, hands-on experience under supervision before you can even take a test to be licensed as any other vocation. And so I felt like, why, why are we not having that for wrestling? Right. To raise the standards and then raise the performers, you know. I went to a meeting of the uh, board of directors for the Kentucky Boxing Wrestling Commission, and I met the, um, who's now a great friend, his name's Chad Miller, who was a part of, was the executive director. And uh, at that time, one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, Chad and I went in and partners with uh, another partner named Joe Reeves and bought, I thought was just kidding at the time, but he wasn't kidding. <laughs> Were you interested in buying the wrestling business? And I was like, well, go ahead, Danny, you're not going to sell this. And then sure enough, he was willing to sell it. And, and I was willing to get ribbed and buy it. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's been, you know, been an amazing experience ever since. I mean, it's absolutely probably one of the most challenging, time-consuming things I've ever done. But it's also been really uh, rewarding in a lot of ways as well. All ribs aside and, and take away the, like, the financial burdens, whatever they may be, this is a great way for you to stay in the wrestling business and kind of yeah. use all your experience that you have because – I mean, I saw you when you had your last year, you're not your last match when you came back to the ring and, you know, you didn't really want to do that. You know, you can't wrestle forever, but you can be in the business and use your influence to help not just the the, the kids in the camp, but also the business as a whole at territorial yeah. vibe. Right. Yeah. And that's you'll understand better than anybody. And that's what I'm trying to do is I want to build a sustainable operational uh, regional place where new talent can come and be taught and held to standards and get experience on a certain level and then, you know, go on to bigger and larger platforms like AEW or WWE. And when they arrive in those places for WWE and AEW, their, their investment is now cut dramatically where they, they don't have to invest as much time or money into getting that talent up to speed to become an attraction to draw money for them. Mm-hmm already been taught or learned what those skills are by being involved in OVW. And then for guys that have had their run on a, a bigger platform, because let's face it, at some point it's going to come, you know, going to come to an end. The run's going to come to an end for those talent, a place where they can come back downward and reinvent themselves. And maybe possibly because of that reinvention, get another opportunity on a, on a larger platform and, and have yet another run. But at the same time, come to a place where they can wrestle for a living. They don't have to take on another job. Granted, they're not going to make as much money as they would in the much larger platforms, but they would be able to survive and be able to dedicate themselves to being able to reinvent themselves and maybe getting another opportunity down the road. So that's my goal here is to try to, to build a place like that. As a business, I think we desperately need something. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Do you focus just on your weekly TVs in Louisville or Louisville? Do you go on road shows as well during the week? Uh, during the summer, we go on right. the 
the road shows, you know, for the fairs and the festivals because they're they're bought shows, you know. Yeah. Regionally, uh, we're on TV here in Louisville live every Thursday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then uh, we're on in Lexington at 10 o'clock on Thursday night. Uh, Bowling Green, we're on right after SmackDown on Friday nights. And then we're in a couple different in Eastern Kentucky and Harlan on Saturday mornings, I believe. So we haven't had the TV there long enough, sufficiently enough, I think, to really build an audience that we felt, I felt confident that when we arrive in a particular town, let's say we decide we're going to go run Lexington or we're going to go run, you know, Bowling Green. I think we're just now getting at a place where we've had that TV there sufficiently to where we can really have a chance to at least break even and then start building the town. Right, right, right. So my, my goal is we have about a two and a half hour circle. So like Indianapolis is about two hours away. Uh, Nashville's two hours away. Bowling Green's an hour and a half. Huntington, West Virginia is two hours away. And Cincinnati, Dayton are an hour and a half, two hours. So uh, my goal is to eventually get it to where we're able to just yeah, have a territory where we're, you know, running uh, two to three towns every week, which we were able to accomplish when, when I first came down here to OVW with WWE when they had me come down and, and head up the uh, developmental program. When I first arrived, Danny and, and OVW, they, they weren't running a lot of live events. I think they ran Elizabethtown and then they ran buildings here in Louisville outside of the arena itself. And then by the time uh, WWE ended its relationship with OVW, I think that last year we ran 184 events. 50 of those were television and uh, the hundred and the rest of 134 were, were live events that we ran, you know, London, Kentucky, uh, Owensboro, you know, just different towns throughout uh, the state of Kentucky. And, you know, got built it up to where we were averaging 300 to 500 people a night, you know, each night. Right. You know, we were doing pretty good, but it, it took several years to get that built to that point. And, uh, and we're in the process again. And now with the exposure, I feel with, and the relevancy, that's really the biggest thing, the exposure and the relevancy from this docuseries on Netflix. I think we're really at a place that we're, we can go back and start, building the territory and start running on a regular basis outside of Louisville now as well. Did that exposure help your houses? Oh yeah. 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 We, you know, for the last year and a half, whenever I would run a bigger event, like on a Saturday night, we run a pay-per-view about every four to six weeks. I run a pay-per-view on fight and on a television special. So I'll alternate between television special that has bigger, more marquee matches on it, and it's just televised. And then in four to six weeks, I'll run a pay-per-view, and I'll try to build to each one. Mm-hmm. And we were starting to really have strong attendance on those. They would, they, they would start drawing consistently. We would sell out and do really good business. The regular 30, Thursday night tapings were still difficult to fill the building, and I think a large part of that was, one, awareness and two, I'm running a live television show on a Thursday night in the same town that you could just sit in your house and watch for free. So why right. are you going to get in your car and drive to the building? So, you know, the, the relevancy that the show uh, Wrestlers has given it now, we we've literally are selling out 
a week to two weeks in advance for the following. Well, that's great. And we already sold out for October 21st for the pay-per-view like two weeks ago. Well, that's amazing to hear because I was going to ask you too before kind of the last thing about about the show. Is it hard to attract talent to come? I mean, obviously you have a local, you know, talent pool. Yeah. But with so much NXT out there and, you know, then there's, you know, MLW, Ring of Honor, AEW, like to have your crew is it harder and harder to find these guys and to keep them? Or is it just kind of typical territorial stuff that you deal with? It's a little bit of both. It's, it's, you know, the roster's solid, but it's a little thin right now. So I need to, you know, bolster it up, you know, case in point, that guy that let, you know, went to New Mexico and now I need to go and scrape and find another opponent that will be the right guy for him. You know, where a couple months ago, the roster was a lot deeper and I had a lot more of those, you know, certain guys that there were elevated and then you could use to elevate other people at times. And uh, now it's gotten a little thin at the moment. So I've got to find some more pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. So how do you attract people to come in? Like just scour the local locals or do you, are you trying to get people from national places or how does that work? I usually, um, Try to like right now. EC3 has been coming in almost a year now, uh, working with me and and you know being here on a regular basis, uh, which has been a, a big boon. And what brought him to the dance, so to speak, was you know his ability to be able to reinvent himself. You know, he wanted my advice and my direction from my experience, which I was flattered. But I was like, well, kid, I don't know what I can tell you. But mm. and the exposure, you know, because. Between, you know, on Fight TV, they're not big, they're not major networks, but we've got about, I think, seven or eight uh, national networks like YTA, the Action Channel, Next Level Sports, uh, Lily Network, RCN Network, Game Plus. They're all broadcast cable networks, but combined, we reach about 100 million homes from Canada all the way down to Puerto Rico and Guam and the Virgin Islands and the Bahamas, it, you know, for people like, you know, EC3 to come, it gives him a platform and gives him exposure, you know, and allows him a place to where he can re- potentially reinvent himself and, you know, maybe catch the eye someone else on a bigger platform that might want to then say, hey, I know what I, I can take and utilize this guy to be a draw and have him work with so-and-so and we might be able to make some money. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Let's talk about about you for a bit, because one of the things I loved about when you come out of retirement or whatever it is, is that you bring out head and people still go nuts for head. Yeah. Talk about this crazy invention from, gosh, 25 years ago. It's still one of the most unique characters, uh, gimmicks ever. What do you think it is about head that has got such longevity where you can bust this thing out whenever and people still go nuts for it? In my opinion... It's and it's the what I tell all the wrestlers from what I've learned from my experience is that the ability to believe 
that I was really crazy and mm. talked about head. And I thought it was a person that spoke back to me and people believed it. And that was why, you know, for much like yourself and like I tell guys like yourself and Steve Austin and The Undertaker, that's the one key to being a star, not just in wrestling, but, you know, anything. If they can believe in who you are, they'll believe in anything you do. That's right. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I've been able to convince people I can knock another human being unconscious with a plastic head. <laughs> I can't even knock a toddler out. I mean, I've tried. It, they usually just fall back and cry, and then their parents get all weird and want to call the cops. Call the cops on your son, your son Billy, because he's not selling. <laughs> right, exactly. That's the true faux pas here. Yeah. But, you know, like a good example is Taker. We're selling that we're competitive prize fighters, much like MMA boxing. And yet this guy's a dead guy. I, I When I was first with the company, I think it was 95 or 96 when we were still doing the in-your-house pay-per-views. And it was Indianapolis. And they're doing a barely alive match with Mick Foley and Undertaker. They put him in the uh, grave. They cover it up. And then a lightning bolt that no one in the building could see. It was just on TV comes down and strikes the grave and a big explosion and his hand comes up to the grave and no one questioned it. Yeah. Nobody went, hey, wait a minute. What the hell is this? Nobody for a second thought about it. They just went, oh yeah, he's a dead guy. Well, it makes <laughs> sense. You know. But you know that that's one of those one of the rules like anybody that's ever been like in a faction with me, like you know, the inner circle guys or Jericho Appreciation Society guys or anybody that I work with, play it straight. If you play it straight, you can do the most goofiest thing ever. But if you play it seriously, yes, it works. Yeah. And that's and like you said, like Undertaker, you, you believed he was dead because he played it straight, or you with head, you believed it because you could have just made it wacky, like hey, this head's so like. But you played it fucking straight, and that that's what really hooks people. Yeah, because if you believe, they'll believe. You know, right? And I, I tell this, you know, I've I've brought it up a couple times. I mean, it was and it was not comfortable believe me it was awkward a lot of times but you know when i would travel by myself i would take the head in to restaurants and set them on the table and order food for both of us i'd argue about the fact that they weren't going to eat and i was going to have to pay the bill again and, <laughs> and you know i got kicked out of a lot of places people would come up hey uh you know sir you're making the guests uncomfortable they're like well they're making us uncomfortable so who should leave <laughs> like well we're going to call the cops I go, okay i gotta go just thinking about this though like like this is kind of late nineties, early two thousands It's basically pre cell phones and everybody's videoing and social media. Yeah. You're basically doing this for the 25 people in the restaurant, hoping that one or two of them are wrestling fans, which would then spread the word around. And maybe no, none of them are, but it's not like, it's not like you're going in there and someone's filming it and posting it on their social media for thousands to see. No. And I'm hoping that if they're flipping through the channel on Monday night, you know, and I happened to walk out and, you know, the guy's sitting there goes, hey, honey, come in here. There's that lunatic that was talking to that. Head mm. Now they believe in me. So now they're going to yeah. believe in anything they do. And they're going to want to watch me because they really think I'm crazy. You know, it gets uncomfortable. But, you know, that's, I think, the one thing that makes us different and also makes us even more recognizable than like a major acting star, movie star, is that. We're not just a character in a film. We are that character. And right. People recognize us and connect with us a lot more intimately than they do just, you know, Tom Cruise is an amazing actor, but you might have loved him in, you know, uh, Last Samurai, but you might not care for him in Mission Impossible. Right. But 
Taker is going to be Taker, whatever you see him. Steve Austin's going to be Steve Austin. Vince is going to be Vince. You know, all of that. It's an advantage, but it also means you've got to always give them what you sold them on TV so that they can continue to believe in it. How did you kind of come up with that idea? Because I remember being in Smoky Mountain um, and either you had, just, you had just been there or were just coming in when I was leaving. I remember Jim Cornette saying yeah. it's the, he's the best kept secret in wrestling, Al Snow. Uh, you know, then you kind of, like you mentioned, you go to WWE for a while and you do a couple gimmicks there that don't really work. You end up in ECW, which at the time was very hot. Yeah. Where did, where did this head character idea come from? I went to ECW on loan from WWE or WWF at the time because I tried to quit. You know, that was a big decision. I, and I I knew that if I stayed there, I had a thought and I wasn't going in. It wasn't, they saw me as a certain way and I had to get out of there and go somewhere else to reinvent myself to either make them want to invest in me and bring me back or get Paul to pay, invest and keep me or Eric, you know, Bischoff to try to pay to steal me. So I, I knew I had to do something. And so, you know, thanks to Chris Candido, God bless him, you know, he, which none of us knew at the time that Paul was working very closely with Vince. We all thought that, you know, there was still that angst and that rivalry. And it turned out that Paul was literally going over to Vince's house and having him write TV on with him. Chris went to Vince, you know, Paul, and then Paul went to Bruce Richard, and they put me on loan. You know, Paul didn't really have any plans, and I I assumed and thought that if you watch me on Raw as Leaf Cassidy, anybody that's that happy has got to be a little bit off. You know, <laughs> right. And then for the the fans that were in ECW that kind of knew me and knew how long I'd already been doing it, and from you know all the tape trading and the newsletters, I figured anybody that had been doing it as long as I had would at some point start to be frustrated, and that frustration would cause a nervous breakdown. So I tried different ways to show that and nothing was working. And then I read, a, I was reading a book on abnormal psychology and there was a case study of a woman who had uh, schizophrenia and what they called transference disorder, where she heard the voices from inanimate objects, but she thought they were mentally ill, not her, that she was perfectly sane and that they were what was crazy, not her. And so I uh, was in the back at the ECW arena where they used to do the Mummer's Day parade floats. And I found a styrofoam head and I was taking pictures with great Sasuke. We had just had a match uh, and uh, Shun Yamaguchi was taking pictures for the Japanese magazines and I was posing with the head. I remembered uh, when Mick and I were riding in the car with Sid Vicious and uh, Bob Holly and Mick had a styrofoam head that he would use to keep his leather mask when he was mankind. He would put mm. that on so it would keep its shape. And uh, Midian had the week before in Toronto or someplace had thrown it up in, in the air and it caught the ceiling fan and kind of nicked the mouth. And so Mick was sitting there playing with it and calling it a lane. I'm like, he was going to do weird things to it when he got back to the hotel room. And then that combined with the case study of that woman, I was like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to start carrying this styrofoam head with me and I'm going to, if I, if anything happens, that's bad, I'm going to blame it. Um, and I'm going to argue with it. And we're always going to be each one trying to control or act like they're the one that's in control of things. Mm -hmm. At first I would just, I'd walk out and be talking to it and interacting with it. The whole match I'd wrestle as a baby face and then I'd lose and I'd beat the head up and the place would just boo me like crazy. And I was like, 
I'm beating up a styrofoam head. Why do you care? <laughs> but the more I did it and the crazier I acted, the more it started catching on. And then it just took off from there. The turning point was I'd worked with uh, Paul, and I can always forget his name. He was with uh, Pat Tanaka. Paul Diamond? Paul Diamond. I do not know why I keep liking him. <laughs> yeah. We were at the arena working a match, and Paul gives me a gourd buster. What a simple move, you know what I mean? Yeah. But for some reason, my arm got up underneath me when I came down, and it completely dislocated my shoulder. I was, you know, I couldn't, couldn't do anything physically, couldn't wrestle. So the November to remember pay-per-view came, was up in two weeks. I was very, I mean, this just very lucky. You know, if I'd have went and wrestled the match, I have no doubt it wouldn't have made nearly as much of an impression as I did the vignette backstage where I'm arguing with the head in the locker room. Everything else is normal. Everyone else is normal. It's just me and the head arguing about the fact that I believe that the head stooped me off. And that's why I'm not on the pay-per-view. It's because it's their fault, not mine. And the next day, everybody was talking about that vignette and it just took off from there, like gangbusters. And then that was the one main thing that Paul wanted me to do was always go and do vignettes, just anything I could come up with where I'm, you know, every time what I would do is I'd make every circumstance normal, everything to be normal. The only weird thing was me interacting with the head like it's a real person. And it just caught on. And thank God. Yeah, but that, that was, I mean, that was something that Paulie was very good at, still is, is he could really find the positives in somebody, focus on the positives and kind of hide the negatives. And with, yeah. you mentioned obviously a big fan. Did, did he give you any tips or he just let you run your own way with it, just realizing this is getting over? He kind of let me run my own way, which I think, you know, it really is brilliant on his part anyways, because that's, it's the talent's responsibility. When they go through the curtain, they make themselves a star. You know, the promoter is there to exploit whatever the talent does. And then together they capitalize on it and make money together. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the one you were right. I mean, Paul was really good at knowing how to get you to hide your weaknesses and then help you accentuate your strengths. And he, but he did it in a way where he never felt like he was driving you to do it his way. He gave you freedom to, you know, go out there and be you. You know, the one thing I do remember him doing, and it, it literally this just came up a week or two ago, you know, they brought me out, you know, at some little independent show. And the guy came up and was, you know, was like, I got this idea and he wanted to have somebody pick up the debt. And I go, you can't. And he's like, why? What? Well, you can't. And I go, I said, do you realize no one hmm. ever touched that? And you know why? I said, because Paul Heyman explained to me he goes, never let someone touch the head. And I was like, why? He goes, because it's just, that's like Jake's bag with this. Right. <laughs> he said, if anybody can walk across the ring and touch that bag or touch that head, it now doesn't mean anything. That's a great point. One time, it was years ago at an independent show, Edge and I worked a match and he picked up the head and the entire building went, oh, like they were amazed that, you know, that he had touched it. And um, Paul was right. I mean, it, you can't, I can't have anybody pick it up or do anything with it or use it, you know, it'll just kill the gimmick. One of the great images from ECW, when you think about the, you know, the, all the chairs getting thrown in the ring with Terry Funk, and there's the one, I don't know if it was a pay-per-view or whatever it was, where you're in the ring with the head and all the fans have heads too. Yeah. Yeah. Did you give them out at the door? Or how did that happen? Yeah, they would literally 
Paul would go buy boxes and boxes and boxes <laughs> of, uh, you know, styrofoam heads. And then they would, before my match, they, you know, Meanie and Wild Bill and Chris Jetty and those guys would all go out, you know, Nova. And they'd just start throwing styrofoam heads into the crowd. <laughs> and uh, the one night, uh, it was at uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, when we, Shane and Chris against Lance Storm, and, and I was the, the mystery partner. You know, they hit the strobe lights, and there were, I think, four or 5,000 people there that night with 5,000 white heads and with the strobe lights. <laughs> it, it legitimately, no pun intended, to look like a snowstorm. It was, it was cool. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When you get the chance to go back, I mean, obviously you said you're on loan from WWF to go to ECW. So when they bring you back, and obviously are they excited about the head? Like what was kind of Vince's take on the head? Because, you know, I'm sure he had to put some kind of a twist on it. Yeah, that's interesting. It was, uh, one, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I didn't, you know, and if I knew then what I know now. Right. I would have, you know, been able to take advantage of so many of the opportunities that were given. But it was funny that like Vince Russo reached out to me, you know, he was like, Oh, I've been seeing what you're doing. I'd love for you to send me at that time, uh, VHS tape so I can show Vince what you're doing on uh, TV there. And I went, no, I'm fine. I'm happy here. Hmm. And then uh, we were staying at, we were doing a show in Florida in Orlando and I was staying at Jerry Lynn's house. The new opening of the show came. They had he just redid the opening of the show. You know, and I'm not right. I felt like I was pretty over in ECW and, you know, was doing pretty well. You'll know what I'm saying. Here's the opening of the show. Here's where we're going to highlight some of the people that we're going to sell. And I was nowhere on that thing. Mm. And I went, Ooh, that's not a good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I called Russo back up and I went, well, uh, my mind's been changed a little bit. And uh, <laughs> I'll send you a tape. And then this man called me at home. I thought it was Mike Bucci, uh, Nova, ribbing me. <laughs> Started arguing with him. And then he said something the way, he's, you know, how he, you know, uh, yeah, pal. Yeah. And I went, oh, shit, it's really you. And he goes, of course, it's me, Al. <laughs> and then we we talked and I came back. I had my contract that that year that they had rolled over was up and I had asked Mike Lewis again. And then I was out of the contract. So Vince called me and I came back. Did he have any opinions on the head or did he pretty much let you do what you wanted to do as well? Yeah, he didn't understand it. And he even told me that he didn't believe that people could be insane, hmm. that they didn't suffer from mental illness. He didn't think <laughs> that was possible. It's <laughs> weak. Have you taken a look in the mirror lately? <laughs> he at one point wanted, he wanted to get a mechanical, he told me he wanted to get a mechanical head that actually its mouth moves and it actually talks. And I went, wow. Oh. That doesn't work that way. And he got so confused. He didn't understand why, why would you not want one that actually speaks? And I'm like, well, that's Mm -hmm. that it doesn't. And I couldn't get him to understand that. So I don't think he really understood or got it. And that was also, that was my fault. You know, I should have had more of a, I was brought in at back in the day. It was 
there's the boys and there's the office. Yeah. And the two never really meet. You know what I mean? Right. So I didn't really, and I should have developed more of a direct relationship with Vince and had more direct conversations, which would have really facilitated a lot of things, I think, and would have allowed me to be the piece in the puzzle that he needed at the time. He needed it more than normal. You know, like the, what does everybody need? What does everybody need? And I knew it was a double entendre, but what people don't realize is if you pay attention when I do it, I get angrier as I'm doing it. And the reason why is because I'm getting jealous of the head because here's a guy who the only thing that, you know, let's face it, we all want to be what everybody wants. We want to be what everybody needs. We want to be what everybody loves. And yet I'm not the, I'm still not the star of the show. Right. And I, I literally was trying to set up the basis to where I would turn on the head because I get jealous and I'd do everything that you would normally do in those situations with another wrestler. I would do backstage and promos and vignettes and, you know, build up to a match with the thing. And I never went into that discussion or conversation with Vince. That was kind of like I had the idea, too, to add more depth to the character of, you know, I had that help me written backwards headset and, and also online. And I wanted to start bringing out different heads that represented different emotions. So when Edge and Christian uh, gave me the blood bath that one time, oh, that was fun. Uh, having all those gallons of blood hit you from that high, man. It was like shoved my knees all the way down to my ankles. I, I came back the next week and was still wearing the bloody clothes. I didn't want, you know, I wanted to keep them because, and I had a, a hate me head. I think it was a fear me head. So it was, I'd taken a head, shaved it. It had its hair shaved off. Had one eye was missing, had black electrical tape on its mouth, you know, to represent that I had, gotten unhinged from the bloodbath and uh, Vince didn't care for it, told me to stop bringing it around. <laughs> it had to go back to the <laughs> But I never had a conversation with him and sat down and said, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's why I'm trying to do it. And here's where I think it can go and what, you know, who you can, I can work with to do something. with. So I never had this conversation. Hmm. I, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but like the entire time I was there, I would show up to TV or pay-per-views and, I had no idea what I was doing or why I was even doing it. You know, right. I think back now I had like pre-tapes for him with Hunter and Stephanie, but nobody told me what was the purpose of it or why I'm doing it or what they're wanting of it. You know, I'm flying blind, but that's also, I have to take responsibility because I never asked, you know, should have asked, right. Right. Should have asked. And I should have said, what exactly are you wanting to do here? Why are we doing it? What are you open to achieve? Yeah. That was my fault, but it was also because I was kind of used to that type of business from day one. The only place I ever, at the time, I think I'd been working for 13, 14 years. The first place I ever encountered agents or producers was WWF. Yes. That was, uh, you know, Goulet and, and Tony Gurria. Tony Gurria, yeah. So I, no, that was the first time I'd ever met agents. Yeah, And the extent of their interaction was, all right, kid, uh, you're up eight minutes. And then they'd walk. Yeah, up. exactly. That's right. You didn't get any other direction. It was like, oh, okay. You know, uh, six minutes and him over. Or, hey, we're not paying rent here tonight. You know, the house shows, get out there. And, no, I need you to do about four or five minutes to get the hell out of the ring. That was the extent of the conversations. You know, there were no 
hey, we want to do this, and here's how I think you should go about it. Nothing like that. I think Terry Taylor was probably one of the only ones that I really was able to have conversations with and would get into detail with about stuff. But other than that, no writers. You know, I would work with the words, Brian, the words, but even he would just give me cursory ideas and then, you know, you were on your own. Gotta go from there. That's right. It was, it was different. It was different, different time, you know. Let's talk about your chemistry with Mick Foley. You guys had a, a, a great tag team and, and you got very popular. Like might have been the peak of your, you know, of your run in WWE was with Mick. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know what my peak was there. I know that we, we got to do a lot together and we did, we do have a definite chemistry. That's for sure. To the point where when we first went to UPN, they sent us out to Vegas to just film, you know, vignettes to promote, you know, SmackDown debuting on network TV for the first time in years. It, it just, we just click, we can get in front of a camera and, and it's just one of those things you just can make that connection. And I, you know, when I really think about it with my time with WWE, which was, again, I, I own all the mistakes I made, man, I was on TV a lot. Yeah. Every week I was doing something. And I really, at the time, I couldn't see the forest for the trees as to just how an amazing an opportunity it was. And, you know, you, you sit there, and, you know, they're not letting me win. Or you get caught up in that silly BS and, yeah. and attitude when you really, when you start to understand that, you know, the wrestling show itself is nothing more than a commercial to sell a product, which are the wrestlers. And then when the wrestlers go out, it's nothing more than a commercial every time they go in the ring. I had tons of commercial time. So, you know, just always. Right. And then I was continued to give opportunities, you know, with Tough Enough, which was an experience. And then when the, you know, the season was airing, I got the opportunity to be a commentator and, you know, and to learn from Michael Cole and from Coach. You know, those guys are so, I don't think people really realize how really good my coach and Michael Cole really were and how adept they were at being able to, like, carry my ass. Mm-hmm. a two hour show or an hour show like on Sunday night heat and make me passable. You know, I just kept getting more and more and then going from there to then now, you know, having the opportunity to be a part of the developmental program down here. That initially was, was great, you know, wonderful experiences and all directly because of, you know, being in WWE. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. talk about um and we can look back on it now and, and get a chuckle out of it but let's talk about yeah. hell in a kennel <laughs> yeah, i mean so so when i first came to wb and this was this was when all that was going on yeah and my whole you know life's mission was to come to work for the wwf and the first night i was in pretty mean sisters put a viagra in sean Stasiak's drink, so he had to wrestle with a with a full boner, which was a dildo they put in the front of his pants. The big boss man hit him in the dick with a with his his stick and pinned him. And I was like, 
Mark Henry's sleeping with Mae Young. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And of course, then you have your big angle with Big Boss, man. So kind of go go through that a bit because we look back on it now and it's a laugh. But at the time, it's like, I don't, I don't know how you got through it. Well, it was Vince Russo had seen Son of Sam, the movie. And apparently in the, in the movie, the, the killer, the dog, a chihuahua starts talking to him. And I think when I think back about it now, I think that they were, listen, I'm, I've always been ahead of the curve. I was getting canceled before cancel culture was a thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm still on the list. My action figure is still on the list, number five on the list of things that Walmart will not sell for the safety of the community. <laughs> Pregnant Barbie's number one, if you're curious. Um, so, yeah, the slut beat me out. But... Uh, <laughs> And I think because of that outrage, you know, that that where that all came from, I think they were trying to eliminate the head. And he came up with this idea of having a dog. I would interact with a dog. I swear to you, Chris, because the number one rule of wrestling is you got to take shit and make shoe polish. I mean, it, and I, I accept res- my responsibility for, you know, the match itself. But I got to be honest, like from day one, Russo and I had that conversation. And I said, I'm more than happy to do this, Vince. I said, I'm. Um, put 100% into it. I said, but you have to give me trained animals. Like the Chihuahua has got to be a trained animal so I can interact with it. Especially when we do this match, I and I did clearly and definitively, I said, it had, these dogs all have to be under voice command where the, the trainers can stand outside that cell and direct these animals with a word. I said, that's, you, if you don't have trained animals, I said, I'm telling you right now, even got even people in porn know you can't work with children or animals. They'll always. Upset. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure. So, of course, the next week we show up in Detroit. Lo and behold, there's a chihuahua there and it's not trained. It's, it's a puppy. <laughs> They've went to a veterinarian clinic, got a list of names of owners that had a chihuahua, called a lady up, brought her down. They were almost about to buy the dog for me permanently. And I was like, no, I don't want to carry this on the road with me everywhere. Please don't do it to me. But they would always basically rent this chihuahua every week for TV and wherever we were at and fly the dog there. And then I would use it. And the whole time, Chris, I swear, I would keep going, okay, but you know, when we get to the match, you're really going to have trained animals, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to have trained animals. So arrive at the building in Charlotte. I'm walking in and all of a sudden I see there's like 12 people with 12 Rottweilers and none of them look dressed as trainers and none look, they just look like owners. So I immediately put my bags down and I, uh, we're going to have a little survey here. going to have a conversation. <laughs> I find out that that morning I had reached out to a veterinarian clinic, got a list of names of people that own Rottweilers, asked them to come down to the show these were the animals we were going to use. One, only one, had some obedience training. None of them were trained at all. When the dogs got out there, the owners still had them on their leashes inside the cell. So now that, you know, we've built the entire crux of this is like these dogs are going to be like sharks circling the room. Right. And that's the jeopardy of the match. It's like a lumberjack match, but it's with dangerous Rottweilers, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, but they are now urinating, defecating, and fornicating. <laughs> To where we can't even show them on camera. The biggest high spot of the night with the dogs was when one of the owners, a very heavy set man, was running with the dog down to the ring, tripped and big splashed his own dog. <laughs> yeah. And this, by the way, is after Big Boss Man fed the Chihuahua Pepper 
to you as a peace offer. And then you had to puke in the hotel yeah. and that whole thing. Yes. And that was, you know, that was all based. Remember, that was a true story about Mr. Fuji who had done that to his neighbor who he hated and hated the dog. So he, when the neighbor went to work, he kidnapped the dog and <laughs> the neighbor was distraught over not finding it. And he invited him over for dinner and fed him his own dog. <laughs> you gotta love old time wrestling. <laughs> so what was the feedback from that? Like when you came back to the curtain, obviously it was Vince there. Oh, he, Did anybody say he came in, he pulled me aside and he said, listen, I, I apologize. We'll make it up to you. I go, well, I, I appreciate that, you know, but what do we do now? You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it never did anything. It never came back around. No, it, was, it was what it was. Uh, but I got an, you know, great opportunity to have a run and work with boss man with Ray. And he was such an awesome guy. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was so enjoyable to go out there and work with him. And so easy too. I mean, just one of the greats. Yeah, he really was. I don't think people appreciate just really how, how good he was. I agree with you on that. I remember one time when, when they used to write Nitro as the show was going, when it was three hours long, they didn't have a script or anything. So they just put boss man versus psychosis in the ring and just said, wrestle until we tell you not to. Yeah. And you would think boss man and psychosis, what are they going to do? And they went like 20 minutes and had this great match that Ray called all on the fly to a guy who barely spoke English and didn't even know like how are you supposed to go like just keep going till we tell you to stop how do you even ebb and flow that right, but yeah. I remember watching that yeah just just a great great guy <laughs> last few things man so so when you look back on your WWE career yeah. I mean I, I think you had quite a, a great run like you mentioned you're always doing stuff and always in the mix what would you have done differently when you think back now, because you said a few times you should have talked to Vince more. Yeah. Uh, but it was a different environment back then. Again, knowing what I know now, if I knew it then, like, for instance, like knowing how properly to work certain matches that are there for you for to do certain things, do certain business. Like when I first came back, the very first match back in, they put me in a tag match with me in the head against Brian Christopher and, and Scotty Tuati, which at the time they weren't underneath team that you know they got over with Rikiki and yeah they did a great job it was just at the time they were used as an underneath team that match was for me that match was to sell me nobody came and told me that i wish they had you know and helped me lay it out or whatever accordingly but they that was my first match back and it was a way to hey let's get this ball rolling and you know Lull, jerry lawler suggested, oh, you know, this will be a great finish if we put the head and shoulders shampoo bottle in the head and pin the head instead of you. And again, which was a mistake because nobody should have ever touched it other than me. And it makes it into a joke. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, I, I let him, you know, do that finish. And it, that should have been my match. And it should have been me going over and selling the gimmick and selling myself and not just thinking of it as, well, it's, it'll be a good match. It'll be a funny finish type of thing. Or, like, you know, even when I first... It was early on, and I came back, and Pat Patterson wanted, uh, you know, Dwayne, you know, The Rock to drop the people's elbow on the head. And I went, okay, yeah, sure. And I really shouldn't have done it. You know, that wasn't the time or the place to to do those kinds of things, especially when I was just starting to get back. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you realize those things now, you know, and I could have put myself in a much better position than what I had done. But I'm not complaining. I mean, I learned from those experiences and and that's what I tell everybody, you know, when I train them is I'm like, look, I'm not going to tell you I know everything about wrestling because I don't. But, you know, what I, I can do is I can let you have the benefit of 
my experience where I've made mistakes. I'm aware of those mistakes. I own them. And now I can communicate to you what you should not do or should do at certain times based off of those experiences to allow you to better capitalize on those opportunities you're going to get. You know, that's my one big thing is that I've got 41 years of mistakes. Mm-hmm. I've got successes and things like that too, but I have came to realize a lot of the mistakes because the more I start communicating to younger talent or, you know, even veteran talent, you know, about things. And I start going, Oh, I did that. You know, I'm here telling them, mm-hmm. don't do X, Y, Z, or you should have done X, Y, Z because we, you were trying, we were trying to sell this, this way. And I realized that right then and then, you know, I had done that, those very same things. So, and they say, you know, if you want to really, master something start teaching other people about it and it will open up doors for you and understanding that you you never had actually had so that i'm very grateful for i hope that i can communicate those things to the talent so that they can avoid those same pitfalls you know like the conversation we're having now go have a direct relationship with the promoter you know with this what i mean you you know you have a question go in and ask it because that way you know what you're needing to do and what and the best way yeah. to deliver and make his vision come to life, you know. But without that direction, it's a hit and miss proposition. So learn from my mistake. Now make sure you don't repeat it. Steve Austin told me that I think my first couple of weeks in WWF back in '99, you know, you have to re- establish a personal relationship with Vince. Yeah, it's going to take a while, but you have to do that. And that advice still rings true to the to this day. Yeah, you know. Last few questions for you: What's kind of the next step for OVW? Where do you want to take it? How do you want to grow it? The next step is I really want to. I mean, now I'm really going to have to work even harder. And that's why I keep telling the talent now we're really going to have to buckle down because. We have such an incredible springboard, and that's exactly what it is. It's just a springboard, and we've got to utilize this now to, to really build an audience and build a fan base, you know, right? that will outlast the shine that the Netflix show has put on us. And that's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of dedication and time. And, and my goal, again, is to build this to where it's a good quality regional territory you know we're running indianapolis and you know we're we might not do 10 we're not going to do a ten thousand seat arena but we, you know we might pull in two three thousand people you know right and for us with our overhead two three thousand people is great and we can make money off of that and the talent can make money off of that and they can be they can be in a place where they can dedicate themselves to pursuing professional wrestling as what it is which is an actual profession not a hobby a real right. profession where they can make enough of a living and survive and maybe develop that persona that's so important to develop that they can become an attraction that then somebody on a much larger platform sees them and goes, you know what, if we bring that person in, we could do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. A shot. And that both for young talent and for you know talent to reinvent themselves. I really believe that one, I think there's a need in the business for that uh, desperately. And two, I think that there's, there's a market for it. Last question for you, Al. Yeah. What's your favorite match that you've ever had? I'm sure you've had a lot of great ones, but for you, is there one that sticks out as like, this one was the one? 
I, Mick and I had this argument one time at a comic book convention because he was like, oh, you, you, there's got to be one. And I, I got to tell you, Chris, honestly, every time I go in the ring, I love doing what I, I've gotten blessed to do for as long as I've gotten to do it. I mean, I genuinely, there's no one particular match or, you know, there are moments, I'm sure, like, I would imagine, you know, you just remember certain matches, you know, where you're like, oh, that was a couple years ago. I got the opportunity to work with George South. Let me tell you something. <laughs> it was so much fun. I mean, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. Like when you get in there with certain people, you don't talk. Like he was out at the gimmick table and he came back and I hadn't even seen him, you know, two minutes. And all we did was we were backstage arguing over who was supposed to go over, meaning I wanted to put him over and he was wanting to put me over. And we were both trying to put the other guy over. His music hit. He walked to the ring. I went out. And you don't talk. You just, and when you do talk, you know, we're making jokes. Like I'm taking yeah. a turnbuckle, a real hard turnbuckle. And he's like, he's up there. Al, you got a job already. You don't need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you can make the audience stand up. You can make them sit down. You can make them cry. You can make them laugh. And it's just happening. Like you were talking about with Ray and Psychosis, where they just went out there. Right. Just go and do it. Yeah. And you just make it. It just happens. And like, those are the ones that I, that really stand out to me more than anything else of those nights where it, it, for whatever reason, it doesn't hurt as much. You know, the bumps aren't as bad, you know, at the end of the night when the adrenaline wears off, you, you're not aching as much as you normally do. Yeah. And I don't know what it is about those matches, but man, and that's the one thing that really has always took me, I think more than anything else, is I just keep chasing that that feeling, that high of being in that ring, just things just happen, just not even thinking about it. Well, dude, it's been great talking to you and, and, and reconnecting. Like I said, congratulations on, on wrestlers and on OVW. And uh, like I said, man, it's, it's, it's always cool to reconnect for sure. Yeah. I was, I was really looking forward to it just to catch up again and get to see you and get to talk to you. you know? I think we're in Louisville in a couple of weeks. So Are if you? you're around, come down to the show and come say, Hey, I think we have a show on November 1st. I think is Louisville. Okay. Bring some of your guys or whatever. And come on down. That's okay. I mean, I, you know, please. I always tell my wife, like, she's like, you know, when raw or something comes into town, they, she goes, you should just go. And I go, you can't do that. That's not the way this works. Like, you know, you, you have to be invited and there are rules to this business. And she's like, that, that, that just doesn't make any sense. I go, that, it's the wrestling. <laughs> I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I'd love, to, I'd love to come down and catch up. All right, bud. Good seeing you, Al. Continue to, you got it. You take care, Chris.